Happy New Year. How's everybody? Doing all right? How many people made uh, New Year's resolutions or are going to make New Year's resolutions? Nobody. <laughs> there you go. I was reading, I, I love reading about these sorts of things and the different statistics of people and, uh, and their New Year's resolution. And the one that I think uh, jumped out at me the most uh, this year as I was reading is that uh, roughly 8% of the people who make New Year's resolutions actually end up keeping those resolutions long-term. That means that 92% of us, when we make resolutions, don't actually end up keeping those essentially promises that we've made. And those 8%, I think they are people who are resolved that they would not lie anymore about the resolutions that they were making there. But, um, but, but seriously, New Year's is a time when we like to make resolutions. When we make promises to ourselves or to other people or to God, about, uh, about our habits, about changes that we wanna see in our lives, about things that we wanna do differently this year. And as you think about it, why, you know, why January 1st as opposed to November 20th or April 14th or, or whatever it is? And I think it's just because it's the beginning of a new year and we wanna make a new beginning in our lives. And other people will make resolutions, uh, they'll wanna change their lives when they move to a new location or at the start of a new school year, or when you start a new job and you resolve that things are gonna be different at this particular job. But New Year's is a time, I think, when roughly half of the people in the United States make resolutions because for them, for us, it's a time for a new beginning. And what I wanna do this morning is look at a passage in the Old Testament where one of the leaders of Israel challenged the Israelites, challenged the people of Israel to make a resolution, not at the beginning of a new year, but at the beginning of a time when they were entering into a new land, into a place that God had promised them for hundreds of years. He had promised them that he was gonna give them this particular land, and they had finally entered into it. They were about to start living in the land and their leader, a man named Joshua, challenged them to make a resolution. They had come into this land and they had exited, they had left out of Egypt about uh, 40 years earlier. They had been enslaved in Egypt and they'd come into this land. They'd begun their initial kind of, what you might call it a hostile takeover of the land of Canaan. They're all gathered there and Joshua, knowing that he's about to die, says to them, now fear the Lord and serve him with all faithfulness. Throw away the gods of your ancestors that your ancestors worship beyond the Euphrates River and in Egypt and serve the Lord. But if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve, whether the gods, of your, the gods that your ancestors served beyond the Euphrates or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. But as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. And I love the way he's putting that. He says, you know what, you've got this choice. You can serve the gods that your ancestors worshiped, that they served back when they were living beyond the Euphrates River. That would have been hundreds of years ago. You can serve the gods of Egypt, the place that you just left 40 years ago. You can go back in a sense and serve those gods. Or you can choose to serve the gods of the people of this land into which we're entering, the land of the Amorites, the land of the Canaanites, and you can choose to serve those gods. And if that's what you wanna do, that's fine. You can go ahead and do that. But as for me, as for my household, as for my family, we're going to serve the Lord. 
Think about it this way. Judaism is one of three monotheistic religions along with Christianity and Islam. And so when you, when you hear Joshua saying something like, you can choose to serve these other gods if you want to do that, there's a little bit of cognitive dissonance there because Judaism is supposed to be a monotheistic religion. They're supposed to worship only one God. And yet here they are, and he's saying, put away all those foreign gods. Put away the gods of the Egyptians. Put away the gods that your ancestors worshiped hundreds of years ago. And don't go after these gods here. Why is he doing this if they're supposed to be a monotheistic religion? Because time and time and time again, the people of Israel would wander away from the one true God, from the God whom we know as Jehovah, whom we know as Yahweh, whom we know as the creator of the universe, whom we know as the father of Jesus Christ, whom we know as the God that we worship and the God that they too should have been worshiping. And yet time and time and time again, they get distracted they would end up worshiping the gods of the peoples around them. So they struggled really throughout their whole history with this, this idea of polytheism. When they lived in Egypt, they would worship gods like Hopi, the god of the Nile, or Ra, the sun god. And the Israelites were actually doing this when they were in Egypt. When they ended up in the land of Canaan years later, they ended up worshiping gods like Baal, who was the storm god, or Asherah, who's the goddess of fertility. And so Joshua is saying to them, no, get rid of all these false gods. We have one true God. His name is the Lord. His name is Yahweh. His name is Jehovah. And we ought to be following and serving and worshiping only him. And I was thinking about this this past week. It seems kind of ridiculous to think of people worshiping the God of the Nile River or worshiping the sun or worshiping trees. You know, why would, would, would people would do those sorts of things? But then I started thinking about the, the sorts of things that we as 21st century Americans effectively worship. Things like money, things like celebrities, things like technology, things like sports teams. They worshiped gods with names like Ra and Baal and Asherah and we worship gods with names like BMW and Apple and Amazon.com and my personal favorite, the NFC East champion, Dallas Cowboys, baby. How about those Cowboys? We put up pictures of our gods on shrines, and we call those shrines Instagram and Pinterest and Facebook. And if you go there, you can see each of us and the little gods that we effectively worship. And when I look at your Facebook pages or your Pinterest posts, I look at that and say, isn't that stupid? And then you do the same thing when you look at mine and you see, how about those cowboys plastered there every Sunday afternoon after they have won their latest game. And those are the kinds of gods that we end up worshiping. They, the Israelites and the people around them from time to time, they would worship gods that are made of wood and stone. We worship little boxes that are made of silicon and metal and glass, and we call those iPhones. You know, they sacrificed human beings by killing them so that their gods would give them what they wanted. We sacrifice human beings also. We just don't kill them. Instead, we use them uh, to get what we want. Uh, we step on them to get ahead. Or we, or we ignore them when we're too busy 
uh, pursuing our gods uh, of money and power and success. They look to their gods to meet their needs and we do absolutely the same thing. We, we may be more sophisticated about it, but effectively, and if we're honest with ourselves, aren't we doing essentially the same thing when we look to money or power or technology or celebrity or whatever it may be, when we look to those things for meaning and for fulfillment and for validation of who we are and for our safety and for our security, when we are looking to all of those different things, we're effectively doing the same thing that the people of Israel were doing and that the people who lived around them were doing. And Joshua was saying to them, no, put all of those gods away and serve the one true God because he's the only one who can deliver what he promises. One of the biggest problems with all of those other gods is that they never deliver what they promise. They may seem to do that for a while. They may seem to meet our needs for a period of time, but they always end up disappointing us. They always end up falling down. They never live up to the expectations we have for them. They're kind of like, you know, if you remember from when you were a kid, those cheap chocolate Easter bunnies. They look really great in the package, but when you open it up and you take a bite, you find out that it's hollow. There's nothing inside except for air. And the chocolate, it isn't even as good as Hershey's chocolate, never mind Lindt or Godiva or you know one of the other gourmet types of chocolates. God puts it this way through one of the prophets uh, uh, several hundred years later after the Israelites entered into the land of Canaan. He spoke through the prophet Jeremiah. He said, my people have committed two sins. They've forsaken me, the spring of living water, and they've dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. Our God, our God is the source of life. He's the source of everything good. We were just singing about his love for us and his pursuit of us. Why is it that I, why is it that we will so often trade him for a, a leaky bucket, a broken cistern, and a hollow chocolate Easter bunny. Why is it that we get so drawn to these other things that we'll forget about God, we'll ignore God, we'll walk away from him, and in some sense, we will effectively choose to worship these other things, these other people, because we think that they're gonna meet our needs better than the God who always keeps his promises, who always does exactly what he says he will do, who will never, ever, ever let us down. Just before uh, the passage that we were looking at, when Joshua was challenging uh, the people to put away these foreign gods and to choose to serve the Lord, to serve Jehovah, he went through a short history of, of the people of Israel and he told them a thing after thing after thing that God had done for them, promise after promise after promise that he had kept for them. They had been enslaved in Egypt for 400 years and God brought them out of Egypt. And what's interesting about that is if you're familiar with the 10 plagues uh, that, that God brought on the Egyptians when he was there, each one of those plagues was designed to show that he was more powerful than one of the gods of the people of Egypt. So when, even in doing that, 
God was showing that he was more powerful than the Egyptian gods. For the 40 years that the Israelites were wandering in the wilderness after they left Egypt, God time and time and time again brought blessing to them. Then they enter into the land of Canaan, or they're actually poised on the edge of the land of Canaan. And God drives out the people there who were living in the land. He sends hornets, he sends wild animals, he scares them, he sends them out so that the Israelites at the beginning of the time didn't even have to do much fighting to occupy that land. And then God says through Joshua, he says to the people, I gave you a land on which you did not toil, cities you did not build, and you live in them and eat from vineyards and olive groves that you did not plant. So why in the world, if I did all of this for you, if I rescued you from slavery, if I gave you a land flowing with milk and honey, if I am essentially the spring of living water, why would you want to look to or turn to or worship or serve or follow after anyone or anything else? It doesn't get any better than following after the God who created us and who provided for all of our needs. So Joshua says, if you wanna follow after some of those other gods, go ahead. You're more than welcome to do that. But as for me and as for my household, we're gonna serve the Lord. Not only does God want to, uh, not only does God keep his promises, he also wants to be with us. He's not a, a, a God who's aloof, He's not a God who's just up in heaven and kind of watching us like if he's watching on a cosmic TV set and watching what we're doing here. He also wants to be with us. After he rescued the Israelites from slavery in Egypt, he explained to them why he did it. Back in the book of Exodus, he said, then I will dwell among the Israelites and I'll be their God. Then they will know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of Egypt so that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. Think about this past Christmas season. Pastor Christian was talking to us about uh, one of the names by which Jesus was called, one of the words that was used to refer to him, Emmanuel, which means God with us. At Christmas, God became a human being so that he could be with us, not so that he could take some sort of a vacation on the earth, not because he thought it would be fun to see what it would be like to be born as a baby and to, to need to have his diaper changed and to grow up and have to rely on human beings to, to meet his needs. No, he didn't need to do that for himself, but he knew that we needed that and he wanted to be with us. God has wanted to be with us since the beginning of history. In the Garden of Eden, God walked with Adam and Eve, with the Israelites, he was with them throughout all of their history, and then he became a man so that he could be with us, so that he could rescue us, so that he could redeem us and meet our deepest needs because he knew that our deepest needs could only be met in a relationship with him. That's why Emmanuel, God with us, came to the earth. If you jump all the way to the last chapter of the Bible in the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 21, the apostle John Seeing this vision, he writes, he says, I hear a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. 
They will be his people and God himself will be with them and he will be their God. He's, John is given a vision of what's happening in the future and the language that he uses as he describes the voice that he heard is almost identical to the language that God had used a couple of thousand years earlier when he talked about why he led the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt. Why did he do that? Because he wanted to dwell with them, because he wanted to live with them, because he wanted them to be his people and himself to be their God. And John says the very same thing. I, God, want to dwell with you. I want to be your God. I want you to be my people. I want to be with you. And I am with you now, and I will be with you for eternity. So Joshua gives this challenge to the Israelites. He says, you can serve these other gods. You can go back to what you did when you were living in Egypt. You can do what your ancestors did. You can choose to do what the people in the culture around you are doing, or you can choose to serve the one true God, the Lord. As for me and my house, we're gonna choose to serve the Lord. And then watch how the people responded. Verse 16 of Joshua chapter 24, then the people answered, far be it from us to forsake the Lord to serve other gods. It was the Lord our God himself who brought us up and our parents up out of Egypt from the land of slavery. And he performed those great signs before our eyes. He protected us on our entire journey and among all the nations through which we traveled. And the Lord drove us out before all the nations, including the Amorites who lived in the land. So we too will serve the Lord because he is our God. Wealth is fleeting. Beauty fades. Influence is temporary. Machines break. People are fickle. But God is always, always, always faithful. God always keeps his promises. And he never promises anything that he can't deliver. Sometimes, with the best of intentions, we make promises to one another. We make resolutions, and we have the absolute best of intentions when we make those resolutions, when we make those promises, but we don't always have the ability to keep them. Yet God is always able to do exactly what he's promised to do. And that's why we can look to him. That's why we can trust him, because we know that he's never going to let us down. As the prophet Isaiah said, the grass withers, the flowers fail, but the word, the promises of our God endures forever. When I was in seminary uh, many years ago, I was in Dallas, Texas, home of Dallas Cowboys, of course. I was there and uh, one of the most powerful sermons I heard was preached by one of my fellow students. He was uh, an African-American pastor, and uh, he was very used to people interacting uh, because in his congregation, people would actually do more than just kind of laugh and, and sit there. They would you know, shout amen, and they'd stand up and raise their hands if they were excited about something, and there was almost like a dialogue going back and forth. And since he was preaching this day to a largely white audience, he decided he needed to educate us as to what would be appropriate. And he said, it's, more, it's appropriate for you to do more than just sit there and breathe and smile politely and nod if there's something that you like. You can actually chuckle, you can laugh, and you can interact back and forth. So he was explaining 
all of this to us. And then he told us a story about uh, a time when he was uh, watching a Dallas Cowboys football game with some of, the, some of his friends. And they're sitting there, and this was... Sorry, I missed that. Was that a little snide remark? You're, uh, you're, you're um, interacting with me. That's good. Did I get an amen for the Cowboys out there? There you go. That's good. Okay. I'm not really good at this part of it. You can tell. Anyway, so, he is, so he's watching this Dallas Cowboys game uh, with his friends. Did I mention to you that I like the Dallas Cowboys? Anyway, so he's watching this Dallas Cowboys game with his friends, and one of the guys is just like constantly jumping up and screaming every time that the Cowboys are doing well, which in those days was about once a game because they weren't very good when I was living in Dallas, which was another story. Anyway, uh, so he's always jumping up and down, and he's screaming and cheering for the Cowboys, and he's yelling at the TV, and he's yelling at the refs, and he's yelling at the other people, and he's high-fiving people, and he's doing all sorts of things. And then this preacher stops, and he looks at us, and he says, you know, that guy attends my church. And why is it that on Sunday afternoon when he's watching the Dallas Cowboys, you can't get him to shut up for one second, but on Sunday mornings when he's in church and we're talking about Jesus, he sits there like one of you, and he doesn't move a muscle, and he never opens his mouth. Why is it that he is more excited about the Dallas Cowboys than he is about Jesus? And I sat there and I said, ouch, that could be me. Why is it that there are times when I am more excited, and it's not so much about the Dallas Cowboys, but a sports team or my new car or how my investments did during the year or my kids' achievements, or, and you name it, and on and on and on. Why is it that so often I find myself more excited about one of these other gods, so to speak, than I am about the one true God, the God who loves me so much that he was willing to come to the earth as a human baby in order to live with the ultimate knowledge and goal that he was going to die for me and then rise again? Why? So that I could be with him for eternity? And when I think about that and I ask myself that question, why am I more excited about anyone or anything else than him? I don't have, I don't have a good answer for that question. My New Year's resolution, my New Year's resolution is to be more excited about Jesus than I am about any sports team, anything I own, anything I do, anything my kids do. I want to be more excited about Jesus and my relationship with him than I am about anyone or anything else. I want this year in 2017 to continue to grow in my love for God. I want to continue to grow in my appreciation for who he is. I've been a follower of Jesus for decades, and yet I'm going to get to grow in my love for him for all eternity. But that can begin right here and right now. And so my goal, my desire, my resolution, my hope, my prayer for myself is that I will be more enamored with him than I am with anyone or anything else. And it's my hope and it's my prayer that that'll be true for all of us here. Renaissance, as a community, 
in 2017. I want us to be a community of people who are growing in our appreciation, our love, our desire to worship, to follow, and to serve Jesus. And notice I'm saying growing, right? We will never, this side of heaven, arrive at a time where we're never distracted by something else, where we perfectly follow after God, where we serve him wholeheartedly, where we never turn to something else and look to that person or that thing to meet our needs. That's going to continue to happen, but we can continue to grow. We're where we are today, but what I, my hope and my prayer is that when we look back on December 31st, 2017, a year from now, we'll look back and say, you know what? I am closer to God today than I was a year ago. My love for him has grown. My desire to serve him has grown. My desire to tell other people about him has grown. And the allure of the other things, the other people, everything else around me, the allure, the attraction that they have has been diminished at least somewhat by the fact that my love for my Lord and Savior has grown. 95 years ago, a woman named Helen Lemmel wrote a song uh, with a chorus that some of you may be familiar with. It goes like this. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. My hope, my prayer for myself, for all of you as we begin 2017 is that we will turn our eyes upon Jesus. We will look full in his wonderful face and as we see his glory, as we see his grace, as we see his love, as we see his faithfulness, as we see his power, as we see him more and more and more, then the things around us, the God's that are around us, all of those things will grow strangely dim in the light of Jesus' glory and his grace. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, when I look intently at you, everything else seems to fade. And I'm overwhelmed by your love for me by the promises you make, by the fact that you are completely faithful and trustworthy and that you keep all of your promises. And yet, and yet I keep getting distracted by the things around me and I keep following after them. And I thank you that you do forgive me and I ask that you would. And I thank you that you forgive us as we get distracted. And, and Father, I pray that as we uh, enter in to this new year, 2017, I pray that it would be the desire uh, of each of us, that it would be our resolution that we would want to follow after you, that we would want to know you better, that we would want to serve you more, that we would want to tell others of your great love and your great grace. And I pray that we would look intently at you every day this year. We would see more and more of your greatness and your glory and your grace. And as we do, I pray that all of those other things around us would begin to fade and recede into the background and we'd be drawn more and more and more to you because you are glorious, 
You are gracious, you are loving, you are kind, you are faithful, you are powerful, and you are our God. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray, amen. Happy New Year. I hope it's a great one for all of you.